So by any means necessary, you're Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how the U.S. government exploits women's issues to further the interest of imperialism. Also going to be touching on some reproductive issues bubbling inside Texas. And it's Tuesday, which means we'll be having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off on the show today, we're very happy to be joined by Lillian House, a writer for Breaking the Change magazine and an organizer with the Answer Coalition in Colorado. Lillian, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Lillian, you know, following after the Biden administration's decision to pull out of Afghanistan following 20 years of a bloody war that was expensive in human life, as well as dollars, really just a crime, I think, all around. And there's been a narrative that has surfaced around, you know, justifying the United States presence in Afghanistan that I even see people who are, you know, nominally progressives or or on the left, as we may say, in terms of concerns around women's issues and women's liberation and the status of women inside countries like Afghanistan. Now, we hadn't really heard uh, so much about this issue maybe in recent years, but the way that the U.S. government and the military industrial complex sort of, I think, opportunistically use uh, the status of women in countries like Afghanistan to really justify military aggression is something that I think we've seen throughout history, but I really wanted to begin by talking talking about how this issue has been uh, sort of used and really toyed with in the question of uh, Afghanistan. As you've recently published in a piece with Breaking the Change magazine, U.S. imperialist lies used to dismantle women's access to education. So from your standpoint, Lillian, what is the reality of uh, 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 how the U.S. government has impacted women in Afghanistan? Right. Well, I mean, it's interesting to be at this point now where it's so obvious that 20 years in Afghanistan, I mean, it's hard to argue that it's accomplished anything for the people there. In fact, it's obliterated the the quality of life and, you know, killed tens of thousands, displaced millions. And yet it's amazing this narrative that there is a humanitarian purpose for the U.S. presence there has not yet uh, disappeared. And I think that this is an important time to talk about what the U.S. has really done there and, you know, the hollowness of these humanitarian objectives that it trots out when it's trying to make war. I mean, in 2001, when the U.S. was arguing that it, that it needed to go to war in Afghanistan, it was talking about, you know, how concerned, uh, you know, the U.S. government and the Pentagon was for women's rights in the country. And, you know, there was no mention and very little uh, pushback in the media uh, about the role that the United States had played in destabilizing and and obliterating the quality of life of Afghan women um, in the decades prior when it had funded the the rise of the Taliban and other reactionary forces, uh, which it had funded and trained um, and armed 
uh, in the struggle that it, it funded uh, the civil war that had preceded the 2001 invasion in which the United States was working to overthrow the progressive government. Um, and so, you know, the United States funded the rise of the Taliban, which did, in fact, have horrible outcomes for women. And then it turns around and it says, look how bad life is for women. We better go back in there. And, you know, I think that at this point, we really need to have a discussion in, you know, the women's movement and all progressive spaces about the, the complete um, hypocrisy and emptiness of U.S. claims of concerns for women. Yeah. And what you're touching on is really at the heart of just the deep hypocrisy and cynicism that the United States uses when when having this conversation about women's issues in Afghanistan. Because like you say, Lillian, the U.S. proclaims to care about the plight of women, but then supports these forces that uh, are uh, completely reactionary on the question of gender and keep women out of, you know, women and girls from going to school and all these sorts of things. I mean, you talked about uh, uh, April in 1978. I mean, these same uh, counter-revolutionary forces uh, supported by the United States um, destroyed uh, thousands of health clinics, schools. I mean, it killed and tortured people um, who the revolutionary government had given land as well as teachers, children, women, medical workers. I mean, this, the, you know, the, the bloody fingerprints of the U.S. government are all over the suffering of uh, uh, the women in Afghanistan. And also in your piece, uh, Lillian, you touched on how the U.S. has used this same tactic. It recycled this tactic in places like Iraq and Iran. And so I was hoping you could sort of break down what it looked like in those countries and uh, uh, really why. The United States seems to consistently use uh, this kind of narrative uh, to justify its imperialist ends. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so what had happened um, in 2001 with bringing out these uh, the, the plight of women and girls in Afghanistan, having Laura Bush get on the radio and talk about how you know her heart went out to the women of Af Afghanistan, and therefore we have to bomb the hell out of them. Um, this was so effective. I mean, this was picked up by feminist movements, mainstream feminist magazines um, were really cheering on the Bush administration and going to uh, the Middle East and, you know, destroying the quality of life of millions of women and children. And so, you know, this worked so well in 2001 that they, they wove it into their justification for going to war um, in Iraq in 2003. And they, you know, in the media at that time, uh, there were, you know, all these images of suffering women, um, you know, women who were being sexually abused, you know, questions of uh, the status of women's health care and education in Iraq. And, you know, the Bush administration uh, once again said that it, it was so concerned for the quality of life of Iraqi women that it had to go to war in Iraq. Um, and, you know, this was used, it wasn't as central in Iraq, but it was used to gain the consent of, you know, progressive people in the United States for what was a, a, an illegal and completely destructive war for profit. Um, and once again, you know, in the media, there was very little pushback exposing the role that the United States has played um, in contributing to that decimated quality of life through bombing the uh, Iraq throughout the 1990s and sanctioning it um, for over a decade 
that deprives, you know, Iraqi women and children of food, of medicine, of clean water, um, and, you know, destroyed their, their civil infrastructure. And so, you know, this again put a humanitarian veneer on a war for profit, on a war for the United States to reshape other people's countries and put in governments that better served their interests, which have nothing to do with women's or any human rights. Um, and I think that this is something that, you know, we continue to see. Um, we see it with Iran, where we know, you know, this has a big bullseye on it for the United States. The U.S. wants to go to, to war with Iran. It wants to overthrow the government there. And, you know, it talks about the status of women in Iran as if it really has any concern for that, as if war would improve it. I mean, what, you know, women in Iran don't live in a utopia by any means, but they actually do have a government in which they are building um, a better status where they are, are working for better rights and they are seeing major improvements in educational opportunities. I mean, right now, the, the youth female literacy rate in uh, Iran is over 97%. You know, there are over 60% of university attendees are women. And these are the kind of things that are absolutely destroyed when the U.S. makes war on, on a country. I mean, life grinds to a halt. And the, the U.S., you know, this concern for women's and humanitarian rights is entirely superficial. I mean, this, this, this government has no interest in humanitarian causes. And yet, you know, why does it always attach it to its war drive, you know, to justifying its deadly sanctions campaigns? It's because it actually needs the consent of the U.S. population in order to be successful. And so it has to sell us some version of this, which actually makes sense to people, because these wars actually have nothing uh, in them for the people of the world or for us. They're for the profits of the, of the U.S. empire. And actually spending all of this money means that people in the United States continue to lack education, you know, uh, free education. They continue to lack health care. They continue to lack housing. You know, all of these social rights, our, our social services are decimated because our, our country spends such a, a colossal amount on destroying um, other countries and reshaping them in order to facilitate the profits of the U.S. empire. And so that's why the U.S. has to put this humanitarian veneer on it, because if it was just sold to us as what it is, there would be no support. And in fact, there would be a mass movement of people in the streets saying we absolutely do not accept this. Absolutely. And, you know, I can't help but think, Lillian, about how in a whole other part of the world, and I'm thinking of, uh, of Cuba, about when uh, the United States recently tried to again uh, carry out regime change in, in that country. It, it used black Cubans in the same opportunistic way that it uh, is using women in this context. And so we see this pattern of the United States sort of uh, uh, seizing upon a different marginalized groups uh, within a country uh, that it wants to attack. And like we're saying, using that as a justification, it, it plays upon people's progressive uh, sensibilities to say that, oh, there's a racial reckoning inside Cuba against the communist government, which wasn't true at all. And also says, well, hey, don't you want the plight of women in Iran or Afghanistan or Iraq to improve? Sure you would. Who wouldn't want that? And so it, it, it's this uh, completely deceitful way that the U.S. government and its corporate media platform 
uh, talks about these conflicts to, you know, manufacture consent for these things that they would never be able to get broad consent for if they actually told the truth. If they actually said, well, we're there to make sure that we're, uh, you know, that we can maintain hegemony and complete control over this region. And Iran doesn't want to let us do that. So we have to, you know, uh, continue to levy these criminal sanctions, which, by the way, always impact women and children the most uh, and even more so during a pandemic. I mean, the U.S. just refusing to uh, lift sanctions on Iran or any other country uh, while the whole earth is grappling with this disease just shows the depth of inhumanity. And what it makes me think about, Lillian, is the importance of there being a, a, a real sort of clear understanding of the role of class in all of this, right? Because imperialism is an assault on humanity. It is an attack on women. It is an attack on uh, the vulnerable peoples of the world, the poor working and oppressed peoples on the world. But I think without understanding the role of class in this, that's why it can get so easy to, you know, get confused about the real motivations of the U.S. government and uh, the military and things like that. And we're so deeply propagandized that we can, some of us really think that U.S. intervention is good. And we'll say that while still thinking we can keep our progressive or revolutionary uh, politics intact. But this is a, a pretty strong, I think, uh, contradiction. And I feel like having, you know, a real understanding of just what imperialism is and sort of its very real material impacts, not just trying to, you know, uh, grapple with it just for the sake of uh, uh, an intellectual venture. But we're talking about something that has a very immediate existential impact on real flesh and blood human beings all across this earth. And without that understanding, Lillian, I mean, it can lead us to, I think, not only to a place of confusion, but it'll lead us to um, a, a place that is just outright dangerous for many, many people. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, without having that, that real firm fundamental understanding that the interests that are being advanced in the Middle East by the U.S. government, by the Pentagon, by the CIA, these are not the interests of anyone except for the ruling capitalist class, which only cares about facilitating you know, the control of the world in order to make sure that it is funneling profits into their own you know, bank accounts and into you know, the United States, you know, the top tier of the United States and its control over these regions. And so I think that you know, what, what becomes so difficult is that the United States actually creates these humanitarian disasters and it will continue to do so over and over again. And then it points to this, the, the suffering of the people and it goes, well, don't you want to do something about this? And of course, progressive people say, yeah, this is horrific. I mean, it is horrific. How is the, is the U.S., you know, 20 years into bombing and, you know, just destroying Afghanistan, how is it pulling out and nothing has been achieved and the people are just, they're left with chaos. It's horrible. But people need to understand that, that 20 years of the U.S. being there has never been about advancing interests other than the United States ruling capitalist class and that another day there won't be anything different. And so we have to, at this point, and looking back at the entire history of the U.S., um, 
series of wars and different forms of intervention all over the globe understand that not for one moment was this about anyone's interest except for the, the imperialist uh, interest uh, in, in reshaping the world um, to make their profits. And they never cared about, you know, the, the poor or the oppressed people of these countries for a moment. That was just to sell us on it. And, you know, if there's a ruling class interest who's, uh, if there's a ruling class whose interests are being facilitated here, there's another class on the receiving end, which is being decimated. And that's the, the, the global working class, all of the oppressed and working people of the world. And the reason that they are selling us these lies is because they understand that we also have power and our interests are on the other end. And we need to understand that we should be coming together and working to overthrow or to end, you know, the, the rule of these opposing interests, which only bring about destruction. And I think that, you know, the anti-war move, the anti-war movement is a huge part of this. Um, and so, yeah, I really think the lesson here is that, um, for people who are progressive, for people who are in, you know, anti-war movements and the feminist movement, we really need to understand that this needs to be a fundamental tenet of all progressive movements from here on out, that we do not support any form of U.S. war intervention because it does not represent any humanitarian interest. Definitely. And, and you really used the most important word there, I think, Lillian, when you said movement. Because when we take a look at how serious this issue is and what um, and just the incredible damage that uh, the U.S. war machine uh, uh, and its uh, sanctions and its, you know, a military assault on people has uh, really wrought around the world. I mean, the only real way to address that critically, I think, particularly for those of us here in the United States, what 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 we may call the imperial core, the, the, the beating heart of a lot of these problems, the real way to address that is for us to organize. And that is how we not only raise the consciousness and develop that understanding that's needed, but can understand what action has to be taken to address the government that is carrying out these atrocities in our name, but without our consent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there have been so many people who have seen their lives destroyed. I mean, tens of thousands Americans were sent to fight and die for somebody else's interest, for the, for the imperialist interests of the United States. And um, and how many, you know, more family members have had their lives impacted. And now, you know, they're staring at this this really uh, stark ending to this 20 year occupation. And I think it's a time to realize that if we don't stand with this, we, we need to organize um, and demand that this this can't continue. And I think we are seeing a lot of anti-war movement um, that's come out of the war in Afghanistan and progressive people should seek to unite with that and really um, take action to oppose uh, further U.S. warfare because we know that this will continue. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Lillian, for joining us today. Definitely encourage people to check out your piece, U.S. Imperialist Lies Used to Dismantle Women's Access to Education at BreakingTheChainsMags.org. That's BreakingTheChainsMag.org. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means 
necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about reproductive rights in Texas. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by China Dickerson, National Partnership Director for Men for Choice. China, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, John. Absolutely. And uh, China, a, a federal uh, appeals court has upheld a, uh, a Texas law that sort of specifically prohibits the use of uh, forceps in the performance of an uh, abortion procedure, something that is considered uh, one of the safest methods of doing this for women and uh, people who are, I think, generally opponents of reproductive rights in Texas have uh, described this as as, quote, dismemberment uh, abortion. And uh, Judge James uh, Dennis, who wrote uh, a dissent around this, said that the Texas law, quote, under the guise of regulation, makes it a felony to perform the most common and safe abortion procedure employed during the second trimester. And I feel like what we're looking at here, China, is sort of yet another example of, I mean, trying to make it as difficult as possible for women to have access to these really sort of basic and fundamental uh, uh, health care options. But, you know, I'm just wondering uh, how it's uh, sort of all striking you at this point, like your top line thoughts here. Yeah, I think it's the same as what you're saying, um, that it, it's an attempt to, in, the, in a way, circumvent or cut short um, certain laws, right, that actually give women access to or grant them their reproductive rights. Formally, what we call it in the, in the choice movement and the reproductive freedom movement, as I would like to refer um, referred as, is um, trap laws. And trap laws, what they do is they, you know, criminalize doctors or criminalize even those who are going to um, have have abortions. They they have seventy two hour wait periods. You know, you have to go to the doctor and check in, or then he tells you have to wait seventy two hours. They say, oh, your facility might must look a particular way in order for you to per-. like. So they try to chip away at reproductive rights by coming up with these trap laws, and this is just another example of a trap law. Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight things like the trap laws, China, because although I think maybe a lot of people may be generally aware of the struggle uh, that's generally posed as, you know, pro-life or pro-choice. I mean, I tend to prefer, you know, the language that, that you're using around, you know, reproductive freedom and things like that, because I feel like at the end of the day, that that's really what we're talking about. But there is such uh, an all-out assault on uh, these rights and uh, access that women have to these things that's happening at every corner. And like you say, I mean, there's this uh, sort of clear strategy to uh, sort of little by little sort of uh, erode uh, these things that women should have access to. And it always seems to be couched in language of, you know, uh, uh, morality and, and all these sorts of things and the quote unquote uh, uh, right to life. But apparently, you know, the life uh, uh, of the woman of the women don't seem to actually matter much in that equation. And I just feel like it's important, uh, China, to kind of, you know, peer behind and get around the, the, the moralized rhetoric that has often happened around this issue to see like the very real harm that this has on women, on families and in communities. Yeah. And that's, a you know, a separate but related issue, which is why I say reproductive freedom, um, because even, you know, saying choice, 
and, uh, you know, they're saying pro-life. Listen, you're never going to win an argument with a true human being that has feelings about, quote, unquote, killing a baby. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. like, no one is going to win that argument. And so you lose on this argument of when is it a baby? And they continue to win because they pull at heartstrings, right? Oh, my God, this is innocent. They chose to get pregnant or they, they weren't responsible and got pregnant. So like you said, it's all this question of morality and responsibility that I think we lose on, which is why we need to focus on the human rights issue of it, on the bodily autonomy issue of it, and not play with these hard strengths because we're always going to lose to the other side with that. Yeah, and while we're on the subject of Texas, I mean, in September 1st, which is just um, a few days, you know, SB8, the so-called heartbeat bill, is set to go into uh, effect there in Texas. And uh, basically, it it would mean that, you know, uh, uh, women uh, basically wouldn't be able to get an abortion procedure if there's a, a fetal heartbeat that is discovered. And what really seems to be at issue here is is the timeline, because in a general sense, there, there's a certain amount of weeks that women tend to uh, become aware that they're pregnant. But bills such as this uh, basically seem to throw a, a monkey wrench in that, meaning that uh, uh, basically by the time you, you find this, it would be, you know, quote unquote, too late under the bill. And so it would be something that would be taking place really without uh, the women's knowledge in terms of uh, development. I mean, according to a 2018 report, from uh, the CDC, you know, nearly 60 percent of women um, got their abortions between five and eight weeks with 36 percent um, occurring at or before six weeks. And so that seems to really be what's happening here with this um, uh, a sort of so-called heartbeat bill and this this thing that the so-called pro-life movement often does in terms of, you know, trying to humanize, you know, the, the, the heartbeat and all these sorts of things. And, and honestly, trying to guilt women into, you know, maintaining or keeping pregnancies that they may have already decided to 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 terminate. So it's a deep sort of manipulation game that I think happens with a lot of these issues as well that I think have to be looked at because it's not just sort of the hard legislative act. It's the very real, like you're saying, from a human rights perspective. I mean, the humanity of uh, women in this sense are are really being uh, exploited to, you know, achieve the ends of these, you know, a reactionary right wing, you know, legislators and, you know, evangelical types that tend to push for these things so hard. Well, and to be clear, these traps, gotcha laws, this this what you're talking about, guilt, this mostly impacts uh, black women, Latino women, women in rural communities, low income women. Right. Because if you want to have an abortion and you're a rich white woman, you go overseas or you have the doctor just come to your house and perform the abortion. Right. Like there are all sorts of things you can do when you have money, despite what the laws are or what the inconveniences are or, or, or what the barriers are to access. Right. And so this is actually an attack not on wealthy white women, but on our most vulnerable communities. And no one seems to a lot of folks don't seem to make that point as well, that reproductive justice is the true conversation and not just reproductive rights. Yeah. And, you know, you went exactly where I was trying to go next, China, in 
really digging into the race and class dynamics of this, because you're talking about black and Latin women, women of color, women in rural areas who very well may not have access, who may need to drive or to travel long distances to even get to um, a clinic. And so even the, 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 the basic thing of even getting to the place physically can be such a hurdle for people depending on where they are. I think this is a particular issue in the South, you know, states like Texas and Mississippi, where it can be hard for people to get around, not to make any uh, mention of the actual cost, like the money that it takes to uh, have all these things uh, carried through as well. And so I feel like we're talking about an element of the population, uh, uh, women of color, uh, poor and working class women who already face so many uh, issues and obstacles and just really trying to obtain the necessities of life, food, clothes, shelter and elsewhere. But when it comes to the question of reproductive justice, they tend to really feel the brunt of it because they can't afford. And I dare say most people can't afford to call a doctor to their house to have a checkup. I mean, that's that's a straight up luxury that most people can't afford. And when we talk about poor and working class communities, I mean, it's just straight up out of the question. And so it puts women in these communities in a particularly difficult spot when it comes to even accessing a lot of these things. And so it seems to me, China, that the race and class question really have to be front and center in talking about this, because when we talk about justice, I mean, there has to be a sort of real uh, a notion of ensuring that all of these resources are made as available and accessible as possible. And if not, then it seems like there's a huge chunk of the conversation missing. Yes, I mean, I believe, you know, and we, as, as we see with most laws and legislation in this country, they all revolve around some sort of white supremacy and patriarchy, right? So <laughs> the, the anti-choice movement can attempt to make it about preserving the life of a child or that a child has rights. But actually what you're saying is that the woman does not have rights over her own body. That's actually what you're saying. And so that's why, you know, even though the, the word choice um, is, is, is not actually fitting, what we talked about, as you described, um, women who are in more unfortunate or, or who, are, who are a vulnerable community, because they're actually not making a choice. They don't see it as a choice. They see it as a necessary, not an option. And, and so we're, we, we also need to move around using that term, myself included, um, but 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 reproductive justice is really about an attack on 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 women, on people of color, on trans men. That's what it's about. It's not about preserving or, or fighting for the rights of a child. And you know what? I'm so glad that you raised this issue of the word choice. And I think more of us should really have a look at that, not on this issue, but in a, a number of others, because when the 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 popular way, if we want to uh, describe it that way, that the word choice is used, it, it, it leads one to believe that, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you know, you have the ability to just choose this or that thing and the same ability to do that that everyone else has. But in truth, your, your choices are circumscribed by your socioeconomic conditions. So is that really a choice or are you basically forced um, with a, a, a number of choices? So that, that's not really of your choosing then if they're circumscribed by your conditions. It's kind of like how people say, well, if you don't like that low paying job, just go get another one. As if you just, you know, have this, uh, you know, bevy of well-paying options at your disposal immediately. It's kind of a, a dishonest way 
of really uh, uh, talking about that and pretending as if everyone has equality of access and equality of choice, which I think sort of brings us back to that uh, class question, which ties into uh, the racial aspect uh, uh, as well. So if you're someone, you know, who doesn't have these things available to you, then it seems to me that you don't really have uh, a choice. And so even that kind of, uh, you know, ideological aspect to it, I think, has to be explored as well, China. Well, and that's where, like, the the organization, uh, one of the organizations I work with, called Men for Choice, right, is about bringing male-identifying allies in the movement for reproductive freedom. And the reason we use choice is because that is the most, how, how would I say, understood. Um, you know, when you're branding or when you're trying to come up with, with a moniker or something, you want your name to be as easily understood as possible so people can, you can meet people where they are, right, in their mm-hmm. understanding. However... We understand the, the issues with that term, and we make sure to explain to the male-identifying allies that we train to support, to educate them, and then support women in the movement and trans men in the movement, that the word choice is not actually the most appropriate term when describing the most impacted face, facing this issue, that it is truly not a choice, and it is a matter of bodily autonomy, right? Like food, shelter, your health. These things are not choices. These are things that you either have to do or you are pigeonholed or, or, you know, because of white supremacy or patriarchy, put into the position, right, to have to choose, if we want to use that word, this, this, choose this, this, this method, right? And so we, we do have to be careful because, again, that is what anti-choice, that's what, they're, 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 what they call their pro-life movement. That is exactly what they're doing. They want to make it seem like, well, she doesn't have to do that. One quick thing, when we talk about their, um, their, their health care centers that they, they seem to provide for women, oh, if you're pregnant, don't feel like you have an abortion, just come into our health care center yeah. and we can help you. That is also false and it's trickery because no one is going to help you take care of your baby until the age of 18 years old. You will always be the primary responsible, right? Um, and so, but again, they trick these women into coming in and saying, oh, we'll give you milk and diapers and we'll help you you know, figure out some sort of program to get into, which is also ironic, Sean, because while they don't want abortions, they also don't want social programs. Mm. <laughs> so not only do you want people to carry, right, um, to, to, to term, you don't want to give them what they need to help them raise the child, right? So that's also the hypocrisy and the irony in this entire situation. But I won't ramble, but I'm agreeing with you that we need to at least gradually, because I do understand um, people having to understand what they're getting into, and choice is just the most widely used term, but we have to gradually head in the other direction of this being about human rights, bodily autonomy, and not choices. Yeah. And I mean, it's a process, you know what I mean? And it makes all the sense in the world uh, for an organization uh, like Men for Choice to sort of use that. And I got to say, the, the fake clinics, crazy. And it's they're not something that I think are really known, you know, outside of folks who really follow the issue. And so, again, it's this thing of of manipulation that seemingly knows no bounds. And I really wanted to talk some more about the work of uh, Men for Choice China. You touched on it a little bit. And I think it's a sort of um, it's an interesting take on uh, the whole issue. And so I'm wondering uh, why you all uh, sort of saw fit 
to sort of have an organization dedicated for men to really um, take part and really organize actively around the issues of uh, reproductive justice and reproductive freedom and why uh, you all see that it's necessary for that, you know, that aspect of it to be highlighted and to sort of bring men into the struggle in that way uh, explicitly. Mm -hmm. So reproductive freedom is a human rights issue. That means everyone should be involved. Reproductive freedom is not a woman's issue. It's not a wealthy white woman's issue. It's not a black woman's issue. It's not a, a rural woman's issue. It is a human rights issue. Therefore, everyone should be concerned about that. And as we know through history, when you start rolling back the rights of one group, then, you know, it's just a slippery slope. You continue to erode the rights of other groups. And so men are people who identify as males should be particularly concerned about what is happening to, um, I think women are now 51% of the population, right? We all have to live together and exist together. If someone, so if someone is telling a woman or a female, born a female, this is how um, the law is requiring you to take care of your body or not take care of your body, then a man or a male identifying person should see that as also a threat to their human right to bodily autonomy. We don't think that men understand that. Most men see it, well-intentioned men, see it as a woman's issue. And so like, okay, women are going to handle it. We'll just donate to Planned Parenthood, right? Mm. But we won't actually do anything else. Well, no, you need to be just as involved as you were in the civil rights movement, right? Or in the gay rights movement as a man, are you as you are in this movement, because this movement is about freedom, human rights, and not just about a woman's uh, a reproductive area. And you know what? You've touched on a point that I think more of us should think about when we talk about movement work writ large, regardless of the issue. And that's the fact that we have to understand how our humanity, right, and our plight and our liberation is tied in with that of a poor working and uh, oppressed people. You know what I mean? That there has to be this feeling like you actually have some skin in the game. And, you know, as you know, as Martin King told us, you know, we're in in a single garment of destiny. So, you know, I feel you. If you agree that women are human, right? (laughs) If Uh if you agree Uh that they're Uh people, then this should be a a sort of a, a no brainer in that sense. And there's one more thing I wanted to touch on with you, China, um, in our last Last couple of minutes. And this is kind of a, a theoretical kind of ideological question, if you will, because, you know, I actually tend to think that even though a lot of the, the so-called pro-life people sort of couch these things in this moralistic, <clears throat> excuse me, this moralistic religious rhetoric. I mean, I, I feel like in reality, it's really just part and parcel of sort of maintaining women in a particular station in this society. Right. To sort of maintain the broader social economic order, because we know that women raising birthing, raising and rearing children, this is unpaid labor. And we know about, you know, that old uh, uh, thing of the second shift. It's like women work. Then they come home and then have to do the unpaid labor of, you know, raising and rearing the children. Uh, uh, You know what I mean? And and how that often falls on them. And so I I just feel like we have to sort of place the reproductive freedom issue within the broader context of a women's liberation struggle, because women's exploitation is such a key factor in maintaining uh, uh, the broader exploitation of our economic system itself. 
Well, and, and that's and that's why I said, you know, this is, I said earlier, this is about at most legislation, um, I mean, legislation from ed- regarding education to health care to housing um, to the environment. When we talk about environmental justice and how there's more crap in communities of color, right, that they don't want to clean up, that the pollution is worse in communities of color, that children of color have asthma and bronchitis at higher rates than other communities because of the physical environment, right, that they live in. All of this stuff is patriarchy and white supremacy, period. It all goes back to that. Um, Nothing happens, and it's interesting because we have this this conversation, Bernie Sanders talks about this a lot, of class versus racism. They're tied together. That's right. I am one of the the people that don't believe it's just a class issue. Um, People say, well, over time, it's not about race, it's more about class. I disagree because still, if I walk in to get a job, next to a white woman, they don't know how much money I already make or my background, but they see my, they see that I'm black and they see that she's white first. Right. Right. Or if I had a more ethnic sounding name, right. Then they would know that about me before. And she might actually, I might actually be white and she might actually be black. But the, but the, the, the stereotype that if you have this particular type of name, you might be black also, right. Might work against you. So I'm saying all of that to say, even the the issue of reproductive freedom is, 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 is couched in white supremacy and gender discrimination, patriarchy. That's a fact. Well, we thank you so much, China Dickerson, for joining us today. If people want to uh, see more about Men for Choice, you can go to their website, menforchoice.org. That's men, the number four choice.org. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garoppa, the editor of techforthepeople.org. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, great to be back for another week. Thank you. Absolutely. And Chris, there's been a lot of hubbub around the uh, content hosting site OnlyFans in uh, in placing some uh, restrictions on adult content on their site. Uh, And it appears, if I'm understanding it correctly, that people will still be able to post uh, certain things, but uh, perhaps not other more explicit kinds of content. And I mean, there's a lot of different dynamics around this, uh, certainly a lot of different uh, uh, discussion and narratives. But what I'm really interested in here, Chris, is, I mean, the way that corporations are sort of orienting towards adult content. And I mean, if one were to look at the surface, you might get the impression that these companies are maneuvering in this way for, you know, moral reasons or or things like this. But I mean, corporations aren't really renowned for being motivated by morality. And so for me, it's hard not to feel like this is ultimately something having to do with the company's bottom line more so than any sort of ethical question. But I mean, you know, what do you make of this issue? 
Yeah, I think this is a really, really important issue, and there are a lot of a lot of takes on this and various aspects of it. But I think it's an important social discussion that's being had. Uh, what really struck me about the OnlyFans question, uh, you know, so first they are they're saying they're they're basically going to prohibit sexually explicit conduct, um, but still allow nudity. Um, basically, they're going to be going off the you know old Supreme Court decision on uh, you know I know it when I see it regarding things that are sexually explicit. Um, what isn't being often mentioned is that they're doing this at the behest of credit card companies, in fact, uh, similar to how uh, the website Pornhub made a number of changes last year, uh, you know, about what kind of content you could have on that site. And that was done because companies like Visa and MasterCard uh, wanted to clamp down on their association with uh, adult or sexually explicit content. Um, What isn't being talked about, though, also is how people have come to rely on OnlyFans and similar websites, especially during a pandemic, to help make ends meet. Um, This move by OnlyFans is, is going to put a lot of people, you know, at risk. For uh, you know, for hunger and food insecurity, possibly for eviction because they can't pay their rent. Uh, you know, most creators on OnlyFans, the average is around you know $180 a month that they bring in, which certainly isn't enough to live on, but you know, will you know will certainly help pay pay your bills. Uh, and so during a pandemic that is, of course, getting worse. Uh, again, with the Delta variant, with uh, you know all of the spread that we're seeing, you know. OnlyFans at the behest of, you know, giant credit card companies uh, you know, is saying that, uh, you know, you're out of luck. You're not able to, uh, you're not going to be able to use our platform anymore. Go elsewhere. And so, you know, this is really what, what, what stands out for me uh, is this move. And I think that the motive here, of course, is profit, right? The, the motive is always profit. If we look back at the website Reddit, uh, you know, a number of years ago, they had, you know, some really, uh, you know, harassment based and really just awful subreddits or forums where people were posting all sorts of really, you know, terrible bordering on illegal things. They didn't do anything about it until they started getting uh, some publicity in the media. And then they, you know, their advertisers were like, oh, we didn't know this was on the site. We're going to pull our ads unless you uh, pull this content and ban it. And that was what made uh, Reddit change their tune. So what we see often is that this, you know, platforms that allow people to create content of, of any kind are really changing their tune when advertisers, credit card companies, and so on, threaten their bottom line. Yeah, I think that's a fact. I think that's a fact. And like you say, I think it puts a number of people in, in a precarious position. I think sort of, you know, exposes again sort of just how much people were abandoned uh, by the U.S. government under the coronavirus pandemic in terms of employment and financial support and things like this. But I mean, shifting gears, uh, Chris, I mean, you recently published a piece on techforthepeople.org entitled Google Report. Cops ask for a lot of location data and we comply. And I was uh, wanting you to get into this as well uh, with this report, of course, that Google came out with, with, you know, uh, sort of uh, discussing their relationships with law enforcement agencies and things uh, called a geofence warrants. And so uh, to begin, I was hoping you could help us understand uh, what is, you know, a geofence and just what is going on here between Google and seemingly having a pretty uh, open policy of location data with cops. 
Yeah, a geofence warrant is when the police go to a company like Google that collects location data, which Google, of course, is infamous for doing, and says, we need to know all the phones that were in this geographic area within this period of time. So, you know, let's say... um, half a square mile around, you know, on, on Thursday night at this, you know, this home. And Google will gladly comply in most of these cases. They will say, uh, you know, okay, here's a list of all of the phones. And they will somewhat anonymize that list. And the police can then come back and say, okay, these are the, these are the ones we're interested in. Give us more information on these particular phones. More information meaning whose accounts are they linked to? What are the email addresses, names, and what other information do you have on them? Uh, Geofence warrants, though, create a lot of problems because you can get people caught up uh, who had nothing to do with, you know, a crime that happened in a location at a specific time. Um, Back in 2019, we learned about the story of a guy named Zachary McCoy, uh, who found out that there was a geofence warrant that his information had gotten uh, caught up in. There was a burglary that he happened to ride his bike near in 2019. He was in the area at the time it happened, um, and he had to go to court and spend thousands of dollars to clear his name uh, just because Google said, okay, yeah, this person was uh, in this area around that time. It was basically his normal biking route. And there are a number of other stories that we've learned about these geofence warrants uh, where Google just hands over the data. So you can turn off location history. Um, and you have to do a few steps to do that. So you need to go into, and I, I outlined this in my article on techforthepeople.org on how to do that. Well, what we've got here, what we learned about it in the last few weeks is just how many requests Google is uh, getting from these. Overall, in 2020 alone, there were 11,554 geofence requests. Um, this is counting the federal government, every state, and the District of Columbia. In 2019 and 2020, every single one of those jurisdictions made at least one request. Uh, And in 2019, every single state made more requests than in 2018. So the numbers here are increasing. 2018, you see 982 requests. 2019 is over 8,000. And in 2020, it's over 11,000. Police are more and more frequently relying on these kinds of requests. Uh, especially after some court cases that said that the police cannot necessarily get this information directly from cell phone companies because the that is covered under um, you know under our constitutional rights. So co- police, instead of being restricted and accepting those restrictions, are saying that okay, we're going to find another way to get this location information and because Google collects and stores and analyzes all of this data in this massive system they have called Sensor Vault. Um, just you know, we'll hand it over uh, with a warrant. Yeah, and I think this is important to know, Chris, because I mean, what you're describing sounds like the police basically just found a workaround. They're like, okay, well, we can't get it from the device, so you know, we'll get it straight from the horse's mouth, as it were. We'll go straight to the source to 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 get it. And particularly as you know, uh, there's all this work in, in in organizing around trying to not only sort of tech privacy in general, but also really trying to strike at this you know really unsettling relationship between these tech companies that hold so much of our data and uh, police departments. So I think what's clear, Chris, is that you know the cops 
groups aren't going to uh, sort of rest on their uh, laurels on this issue. It seems like they'll just basically find another way to, to skin the cat and have access to uh, uh, this potentially sensitive information uh, that they obviously want uh, as much access to as they can get. Yeah, they definitely do. And there are very few laws protecting uh, protecting us from any of this. And where the laws do exist, the police, of course, are the ones who enforce those laws. They work closely with attorney generals and prosecutors, attorneys general uh, and prosecutors and all sorts of other law enforcement agencies. So they are very unlikely to be punished for this without significant outcry from the public. And that's really where the movement for privacy and the movement for civil rights comes in here. They're going to do this one way or another until we stop them, until we force them to put a halt to these geofence warrants, until we say, Google, we're not going to you know, use your services. We're going to try to avoid your services unless you stop providing this information. And it's a combination of workers at these companies and consumers and privacy, uh, people who are concerned about privacy, to say, we want something to change here. Ultimately, it's our data. We should control it. And it should not be difficult. For you know, for us to say, Google, don't even store my location. Why? Why do you need that? You don't need to store my location. Definitely. And another thing that I wanted to touch on with you today, Chris, uh, the good old folks over at a uh, Clearview AI. I mean, it's being reported that the U.S. Army actually has a contract with a uh, Clearview using their uh, facial recognition technology to uh, basically scour social media images to identify people. I mean, uh, help us understand sort of what's happening with this relationship uh, between the Army and uh, Clearview AI and what you see as as the implication. Yeah, this is uh, coming from um, Business Insider. What we learned recently is that Clearview AI has a contract uh, with the Army's Criminal Investigation Command, which is based, we should we should note, in the United States. This is a division of the Army that investigates crimes involving service members, either as the perpetrators or the victims. Um, they then work with police uh, in order to effect arrests and uh, then prosecutions. They don't actually have that power uh, themselves. So if a service member is the victim of a crime or is the perpetrator of a crime against a civilian, they can help, you know, look into these things. Well, the CIC has started working with Clearview AI. They're getting a discount rate. Uh, you know, they're getting 50% off a license for Clearview AI, $1,000 per license when it's normally about two grand. And so they have, uh, they have, a $15,000 contract, which doesn't seem like a whole lot, but I think what we're seeing here is a kind of a trial run. Um, the the way they're using it in these investigations matches really the way that private businesses have also been using Clearview AI, that police departments across the country have used Clearview AI and Amazon's recognition. Um, and the scariest thing we need to remember about about this product particularly is how they get the faces to compare to. Clearview AI just scrapes information and faces and names and accounts off of Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and Flickr and you know basically everywhere that you can think of. They just go and grab that information, and these you know these sites always say, "Well, we don't want Clearview doing this," but they don't do a whole lot to stop them, uh, especially when Clearview's business model relies on this, and they'll spend a lot of resources going around that. 
so I think the significant thing about this story is that it's now uh, part of the U.S. military that is using Clearview AI's technology uh, within the United States, even uh, as part of a semi-law enforcement uh, agency. Uh, we know that the military has no problem, right, with getting all sorts of biometric and data collection uh, software and hardware. Uh, last year, if we remember, the military was uh, found to be buying location data that originally came from a Muslim prayer app, in fact, a Quran app, um, and they were buying that through third parties and using it to track people in the Middle East. Uh, and now it has come home. This, this kind of surveillance has, has come home. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, August 24th, 2021. And in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show, because at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you'll be able to hit us up at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. All right, but it's our standing by. Shout out to Ryan in the booth. You can also hit us up on social media, facebook.com slash BAM necessary and on Twitter at BAM necessary. You can download our shows on iTunes. We would very very much appreciated. Nice rating from you. iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Spreaker. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. You can hear us on 105.5 FM on your dial and 1390 AM here in the Washington, D.C. area. But wherever you are in this world, we most certainly want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour today, a bit of good news. 70, uh, well, a uh, political prisoner, David Gilbert, has actually been granted clemency by a New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, as one of Cuomo's uh, last acts before he stepped down as governor, of course, amidst a scandal that we uh, cover to some extent here on By Any Means Necessary. The 76-year-old prisoner has been locked up for over 40 years. He was at one time a part of the Weather Underground, and he was convicted of felony murder and robbery in connection to uh, a robbery that took place of a Brinks armored truck in Rockland County that resulted in the deaths of two police officers and a security guard. Now, to be clear, uh, this clemency will not mean an immediate release for David Gilbert, but it will mean that he'll be able to take his case to the parole board, free David Gilbert and all political 
prisoners. And we are happy to be joined for the hour today by Breakthrough News journalist Kay Pritzker. Kay, thanks so much for joining us. Always good to be here, Sean. Absolutely. And Kay, it's being reported that President Joseph Robinette Biden is maintaining his aim to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan by August uh, 31st uh, because of what's being called a, quote, very high risk of attacks, I believe, from the Taliban, who whose presence has been uh, uh, escalating rather quickly and, frankly, in the uh, takeover of Afghanistan since this uh, pull out began. Now, this also comes as the Taliban has uh, 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 blocked the access of the Afghan people to the airport and Kabul and are saying that they are rejecting any delay of Washington's withdrawal. Now, Kat, you recently put out uh, a video about Afghanistan sort of a- as a central point, but really you were talking about the business of war. And I think that this 20-year-long war in Afghanistan carried out by the United States is such a good example of this because, you know, never-ending war means never-ending profits. War in the United States is a business that doesn't just exist to create super profits, though it certainly does that. But we're also talking about an industry that seeks to uh, carry out influence over the political operations of the United States, which it does, I think, with quite a bit of success when we look at the people who are a part of the defense industry before coming into government positions and then when leaving government positions, going right back to the defense industry. It's like a a revolving door to make sure that the war industry keeps chugging right along. And while those dollars are being generated, Generated, so is ongoing bloodshed, death, and destruction for folks all around the world as people here in the United States continue to go without so many uh, bare necessities. And something else you point out in the piece that I think is very noteworthy is how the United States defense budget is larger than I think the next 11 countries. And so, Kay, I mean, this kind of uh, cynical thing that we're seeing the U.S. Uh, maneuvering in, in in terms of Afghanistan. I mean, I think the U.S. government knew very well what would happen if they pulled out in this way. But I mean, you know, the these are the wages of imperialism that we're seeing. And it uh, while the United States, like in so many ways, likes to pretend that it's doing the quote unquote right thing or the moral thing. This really is just sort of uh, uh, another way for it to sort of slyly continue its own uh, uh, imperial designs, if you will. Yeah, that's exactly correct. Um, A number of things there. I mean, first thing I would say is that people should understand that, you know, the United States creates very little in terms of manufactured goods. The United States doesn't really manufacture much of anything. You know, in the 1970s, most of the country was deindustrialized, and a lot of those jobs were sent overseas where there's a lot more cheap, exploitable slave labor, essentially, sweatshop labor. And, you know, one of the few industries that is still very prominent in the United States is the weapons industry. And, of course, the United States is the world's largest arms exporter. 
you know, it sells weapons to 96 countries. And at the center of this is the weapons industry, uh, companies like Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, uh, you know, General Dynamics, et cetera. These are American companies that make missiles, that make tanks, helicopters, and, uh, you know, sells them to the U.S. government, sells them to the Israeli government, sells them to the Saudi Arabian government for, you know, their use to commit war crimes or what have you. Now, the way it's set up is very intentional. A lot of the menu, like the manufacturing, all the different parts, the assembly takes place in so many different countries. And it's set up this way by design that just about every single state or congressional district or, you know, Senate, you know, state has um, some stake in the weapons industry being maintained and growing because people in that state have jobs that rely on this industry existing. So because of that, you know, these senators, these representatives, obviously, uh, they have they have no problem advocating for the weapons industry. In fact, it helps them with uh, large portions of their voter base. On top of that, they also get donations. On top of that, um, like you mentioned, Sean, so many politicians are offered jobs at these weapons industries, uh, at these weapons companies after they, they um, are finished. And, you know, they don't really do anything. Like, they're really just a, a name, uh, someone with a lot of connections that the it, that the company can then use to, you know, bribe other people. So, you know, it's a really good gig for, it's a nice cushy gig for someone who has no moral, you know, compass whatsoever. Once you're done, uh, you know, wasting everyone's money and time in Congress, you can then go and make, you know, a million dollars a year for doing just about nothing for a weapons company. So, there's a lot of, you know, um, incentive for these uh, congressional representatives, for these Congress people and senators to sell their souls to the weapons industry. You know, obviously, they're willing to pass legislation to defund the social safety net, to defund education. Uh, you know, they have no qualms about spending more money on war either, especially when they're getting paid to do it. And then the other thing you mentioned is, yes, you know, the Afghan withdrawal, you know, a lot of one thing that's just been driving me crazy is that all of these media pundits are talking about like, this is so horrible. The Taliban are taking over Afghanistan and like, yes, like the Taliban are horrible, but who, who put them in Afghanistan, the United States. And on top of that, you know, I saw, I saw someone on Twitter, uh, in anti-war activist, Brian Becker tweeted something that I, I just like, you know, it just speaks volumes. Like people are freaking out about, this withdrawal and, oh my God, the Taliban are going to take over. Where were these people when the United States was waging an air war, a drone war against Afghanistan, which took 71,000 people's lives? Right. 71,000 people. I mean, just think about the sheer amount of death and carnage. That never went reported in the media, but everyone's freaking out about the Afghanistan thing, um, really because, you know, the media is, is just in full consensus that there needs to be more war, more occupation in the world. And uh, one last thing is, you know, in, in Joe Biden's speech where he sort of explained the rationale behind this decision, he actually said, you know, we actually we, we want to, to focus on other areas of the world. And he talks about Syria. He talks about Lebanon. He talks about he heavily insinuates uh, that China is a huge target of this. And I think China is the real target. Uh, you know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump and all the presidents 
have been setting up this sort of longer term Cold War with China. And uh, I think they're trying to move a lot of the military assets in Afghanistan and reposition them to sort of encircle China. And I'm glad you raised that because I tend to agree that China is sort of the real target here, Kay. And this new Cold War reality that we're in, that, you know, if the U.S. gets its way, would turn into a hot war, which which would have just catastrophic consequences, not just for the two countries involved, but I think for the world. Although I think, you know, for the U.S. ruling class and the international ruling class, I mean, it would be worth it to keep from uh, socialist China becoming the uh, uh, top economic force in the world. And I think it's important to, to sort of understand and for people to know that when we see imperialism maneuver, it's never by accident. They don't generally do things like this in a vacuum or, or they don't treat things as sort of an isolated incident. They're always sort of looking for how this or that piece factors into their broader project for full spectrum dominance, which is just another way of saying world domination. And see, this is another part of the military industrial complex and how crucial a role it plays in the imperialist project, because it's not just about, you know, cranking out bombs and drones, uh, uh, you know, for the sake of profit, although certainly profit is a big aspect of it. But all of these uh, warlike policies, whether it's, you know, quote unquote, boots on the ground or the weapons that I just named or whether it's tanks or whether it's sanctions, which are a form of war that are not an alternative to war, but that cause a great suffering amongst the people that have to live under them. And that I have to point out, continue across the world, even under the uh, coronavirus pandemic. But, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about something that is a far reaching um, a, a sort of years running project. And as the United States continues to see China as uh, uh, its chief competitor, Kay, I think that, you know, we can just about bet that any of these maneuvers will, will ultimately be um, around that. And as I often point out, when we saw the Donald Trump administration's posture towards China, you know, people rightly, you know, called it out for just how, you know, racist it was and all these sorts of things. And we see the Biden administration, I think, doing a lot of the same things, just, you know, not quite as uh, belligerent in its presentation as it was with Donald Trump. But to me, it doesn't make it any less uh, racist and certainly not any less imperialist because white supremacy is a key factor of imperialism. That's why, you know, we still have these things getting, you know, uh, stoked up like uh, uh, the Wuhan lab leak conspiracy and uh, all these sorts of things and Chinese spies and, you know, narratives and, and all these sorts of things. I mean, we're supposed to believe that, you know, there are Chinese people under our bed, inside of our mailboxes and, and all these sorts of things. We're supposed to see any country that the United States deems as an enemy as like a, a boogeyman figure, right? And this is a part of that manipulation. This is a part of that propagandization that uh, coerces us in a way without our knowing and to consent for what the U.S. is doing, be it in Afghanistan against China or really any of these countries, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really, you have to think about what it takes to drive people to war 
Um, you know, a lot of people were sharing headlines from the beginning of the Afghan war and the level of racism is just palpable. It's, it's hard, it's hard to not notice, you know, the wall street journal editorial board saying the answer to Afghanistan was colonialism. Um, you know, New York times opinion section, publishing pieces saying, you know, uh, we need to take, we need to take two cities in Afghanistan before, uh, before Eid it's, or no, it was Ramadan. And it's just like this ridiculous, you know, sort of, uh, cultural war against Afghanistan. But it, you know, in the context of imperialism, you really need a sort of, uh, you need to just whip people up in a sort of racist frenzy. You need to portray the enemy as a lesser than human. Otherwise people aren't going to want to go to war with that country. So, you know, with China, you see the exact same thing as Afghanistan. You see this very racist depiction of Chinese people as, you know, robots, as obedient, as, you know, sneaky. And they're always, they have some kind of plan to get you. And, you know, you, you don't know, whatever. Um, you see a lot of this sort of racist rhetoric being deployed, not because, not just because, you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, you know, hate Asian people or are insensitive to Asian culture. I think, you know, the larger operating sort of motive here is that they need to do this, regardless of how they feel about Chinese people personally in their hearts. Uh, they need to portray China as an enemy and as a threat because for strategic reasons, for uh, profit motives of the weapons industry. For a lot of reasons, the United States has, you know, interest in going to war with China uh, because they want to protect their global hegemony, like you talked about. So uh, they really have no choice but to depict Chinese people this way. And uh, it's a really, so it's a really slippery slope. And, you know, I, I want to uh, tell people who are listening to this, like, even if, you know, like Sean mentioned earlier, the sanctions piece, and some people might feel like, oh, well, we don't have to go to war with China. We don't have to have a shooting war with China. Let's just sanction them or let's just, you know, crack down on uh, the human rights, the so-called human rights violations or the violations of freedom of speech or whatever. But it's a slippery slope because, A, all these accusations are loaded accusations and usually aren't as truthful as they come off. But B, you know, it, it is a sort of slippery slope where, you know, you are sort of you're just criticizing uh, you know, these programs and you're just doing this. And then all of a sudden you find yourself escalating and escalating. And, you know, it's hard to sort of de-escalate a conflict. And once, you know, you reach a certain point, once you start sanctioning people, once you start sending ships to, uh, which they're already doing, they're sending ships through the Taiwan Strait. Um, you know, there are U.S. soldiers in Taiwan. Um, when you start to escalate to a certain point, it's hard to de-escalate. And that's kind of exactly what you saw you know, with Iraq, with Afghanistan, with Libya, with Syria, uh, once you sort of climb that ladder, it's hard to climb back down. So I think any sort of escalation of hostilities, hostilities with China, it's not just some like innocuous thing. It's not like, oh, well, we just want to escalate to a certain point and pull back. Any escalation really risks a much larger conflict. And not to mention a lot of these accusations are just straight up lies, but I don't really have time to go through all that right now. Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. And you touched on something I think that is very true when you talk about how um, to justify the war drive, how the dehumanization of the quote unquote enemy is so important to that. Because, I mean, not that long ago, right here in the United States, we saw um, a, a spike, a very uh, frightening spike in anti-Asian violence specifically. That is a direct result 
not only of how um, the coronavirus was sort of portrayed as being, you know, a product of China, it, either it sort of emanated from China or, you know, it was cooked up in a lab. Either way, we have to um, uh, uh, blame them. And so, you know, that on top of the ongoing uh, uh, attacks against China from administrations, both Republicans and Democrat, is what resulted in this uh, wave of of anti-Asian violence. And, you know, the Biden administration put out, you know, what was supposed to be an act or a bill or a measure to, you know, protect Asian Americans. But as ever, it was just something that just would have gave more um, money to the cops. And so understanding that both Democrats and Republicans are really just two wings of the same ruling class, then, you know, it stands to reason that they're going to have very similar ideas about these sorts of issues that, uh, though it just may look slightly, uh, slightly different. And so I think that's why we, we, we saw so so many of these things that we did, it's the blowback because you dehumanize those folks abroad. And then that blows back with the diaspora here in the U S and elsewhere. And so the thing just sort of continues to perpetuate itself. And the only people who uh, uh, really benefit are the profiteers and the ruling class who live worlds away from all of that. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on by any means necessary on radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. We continue to be joined by... Mr. K. Pritzker. And, uh, you know, K, speaking of the anti-war movement, which you uh, mentioned earlier in our conversation, and maybe this is an aside, but this is a narrative that I'm really curious your thoughts on. And this is something that comes up every so often in the world of anti-war struggles and anti-imperialist struggles. And what I'm talking about specifically, because it's come back up in the context of the Afghanistan question, is the involvement of veterans and even active duty military people in the anti-war, anti-imperialist movement. And there are people who feel strongly that veterans and active duty folks shouldn't be in the movement and that it's sort of, you know, incongruous or, or inappropriate or antithetical for them to be there. But I mean, I I tend to think that's sort of a misunderstanding of history. I mean, they have always been uh, uh, veterans in the, you know, anti-imperialist struggle, even uh, uh, active duty folks, even while folks are in the military. And I know certainly there's a uh, history of, you know, uh, black servicemen sort of organizing against racism and exploitation, um, not only that they face in the military, but how that extends to um, uh, the wars themselves, that they're being sent to fight for a country that won't even give them basic human treatment. And I mean, I'm thinking of people like, you know, uh, Geronimo Pratt, 
uh, Kwesi Balagoon, you know, uh, lots of folks, I think, that uh, came into the movement from that experience. But I mean, I'm generally wondering how you see that question and sort of what it means when we talk about further developing an anti-imperialist movement that clearly needs to be strengthened in a moment like this. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And it's a topic that has really come up since the Afghanistan piece uh, really started to unravel. And yes, you know, I would say beyond a misunderstanding of history, I would say it's a lack of understanding of history. Mm. Every sort of uh, anti-war movement, um, you know, the most prominent anti-war movements always featured veterans, not because, you know, oh, well, you know, it's great to have people who fought the war come and say they renounce it, or, you know, it's like the moral sort of, uh, you know, you're having the veterans speak. It's a lot of these veterans were the ones leading these struggles. They were the ones who were so infuriated with the fact that they had essentially been lied to and then sent off to die in a rich man's war, uh, you know, told that they were fighting for freedom and democracy, told they were fighting for human rights, only to get wherever they were deployed and realize everything they were told was a lie. And, you know, I often tell people like to, to these people who say, Oh, well the soldiers, you know, they went to like kill people. They went to kill innocent people. And, you know, I remind them we live in a society that runs on war. That's addicted to war where war is one of the main sort of drivers of the economy. And like we just talked about in the first half, in order to justify those wars, you need to lie to people. And that includes Soldiers, you need a line of soldiers to get them to fight. So, really, you know that the whole like frenzy that people were whipped up into after nine eleven or during the Cold War, the anti communist frenzy, like a lot of people fell for that, and you know a lot of people were lied to. And some people's response was to sort of uh, you know to fight, to enlist, and to fight. But it's often those who enlist and fight that go and realize firsthand that the the mission that they're being told they're doing is actually not true. And they're actually doing the opposite. And you're correct. I mean, the, the sort of uh, rebellion among black soldiers, especially is incredibly prominent, you know, beyond Vietnam, which was um, huge. The, part- the participation of black soldiers in the anti-war movement was huge. You know, there were soldiers in uh, that were involved in the U S uh, colonization and sort of attack on the Philippines mm-hmm. or in Korea um, who, you know, were treated in such a horrible way by this government that was supposedly about human rights and democracy. You know, I, I was reading a book recently called Turn the Guns Around, which is about this question exactly. And I remember reading one of the the uh, excerpts, this uh, black soldier in, deployed to the Philippines, what made him realize that he was being lied to was the fact that they were calling not, not just the Filipino enemy, the so-called enemy, the N-word, and him, the N-word. And he realized, wow, they're they're equating the two of us, even though we're supposed to be on opposite sides, even though I'm supposed to be on the same side as this officer who's calling me a, a racial slur. You know, it's this disgusting sort of hypocrisy of the United States to sort of say, oh, we're the, you know, the defender of freedom and human rights, only to then, you know, go to these countries and violate human rights and, and restrict people's freedom that makes people realize that these wars are a lie. And it's often the veterans that are leading these struggles because, you know, they're really the ones being lied to. And you can see that in Vietnam. Furthermore, I'll just say, you know, for anyone who calls themselves, you know, um, revolutionary or thinks of themselves as sort of a, a radical, 
you know, there's not really a single revolution in history that you could point to that hasn't relied on veterans or the military or the army sort of changing sides and realizing that they're on the wrong side and they want to be on the right side of history and sort of, uh, you know, turning the guns around for lack of a better word. But, you know, that's definitely a book to check out for people who are more interested in the question. Definitely. And, you know, I'm glad you make this point because, I mean, we're fooling ourselves if we think that somehow the racism aimed at uh, people abroad, the quote unquote, you know, enemy population in the uh, uh, enemy country, the country we're told they're our enemy. I think there's a separation between the racism aimed at them and that that ends with them and won't be directed at even other Americans who are not white. I mean, you know, this is a fantasy. There really is no uh, dividing line uh, between that. And I mean, if you know people of color in the military like I do, uh, then you know that up until the 21st century, racism in the military is still uh, very much an issue. You know what I mean? And so when we talk about fighting these rich man's wars, Kay, I mean, that's really what we're talking about. I feel like the American public and a lot of the troops are fed this line like, you know, it's it's their patriotic duty and they're, you know, uh, protecting America. I remember, you know, I was in middle school when 9-11 happened and uh, uh, then President George W. Bush told us that there were people that hated our freedom. I mean, which in a literal which I mean, if you just take a look at that, I mean, it makes no sense at all. You know what I mean? Like, why why would people just wake up one day and randomly decide that they hate the quote-unquote freedom of some other country? I mean, it skirts over so much. It certainly skirts over the active role the United States um, played in the development and support of terrorist groups like the Taliban, and that's just one. I mean, it it supports uh, terrorist groups and right-wing groups in different parts of the world to this day, although the United States supposedly uh, carried out a war against terrorism, the United States government is perfectly fine with terrorism if it allows uh, Washington's uh, plans basically be to carry forward. That's why they support, you know, all of these uh, extremist groups in Syria. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. You know what I mean? And so I just feel like we're at a point, particularly with all the crises that are facing the American people in this moment, I mean, it just seems like it's getting harder and harder for this, you know, lie of, you know, war being necessary. Um, it just seems like it's getting harder for that to really um, abide as people seem to be having less and less faith in the system itself. The capitalist system and the imperialist system have shown itself to be um, unstable and illegitimate. And while I don't think we're necessarily on the precipice of like a revolution in consciousness just yet, I do think that it, it's having a sort of impact on people's consciousness uh, in a way, because I for one don't think that the United, the people of the United States, I don't think that they're really all that interested in war, right? Like in a real sense, I think that just on a constant basis, we're being told that, uh, you know, we're being made to feel and think that these wars and these conflicts are necessary and that ultimately it's in our interest to support them. But in reality, Kay, it's really in the interest of the pockets of these war profiteers and the ruling class politicians and officials that are their sponsors or who they sponsor, I should say. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they, they sell all these wars because they have to. They can't go to war without our consent. You know, they can't go to war if it's massively unpopular. They sell us these wars by saying, oh, well, you know, this is for all of us. This is for our freedom. This is for our democracy. This is for our way of life. And, you know, it's, it's not. It's, you know, no one is, be- no one is better off because we go to war. No, one, um, no one's life improves. In fact, you know, poverty and inequality have only increased since the war on terror has begun. Um, you know, people are in more of a precarious position. And, of course, every single case of homelessness, every single case of rent burden and insecurity, uh, people who live paycheck to paycheck, all of that is a symptom, is a direct consequence of us spending trillions of dollars on war every single year or, you know, a trillion dollars on war every single year. And over the last 20 years, you know, God knows how much money uh, we've wasted on these wars when we could have been solving the the problems of poverty and, you know, inequality in the United States. So anytime you see poverty in the United States, just think, just think this is because they are spending money on war. That is, that is why, you know, that is why this is happening. And Furthermore, you know, the way the soldiers are treated, no different than the way a corporation treats a sweatshop worker or, you know, a minimum wage worker. Like it is a tool. It is like a towel you use and throw away. Um, That is how soldiers are treated. They go to fight the wars and die and they say, oh, we love you so much. You're the troops. We love you. We respect you. Go and fight this war. And, you know, if you make it back alive, if you make it back with two, both of your legs, you know, we might send you to college. We might send you to college. We might give you health care. We're not going to help you if you have PTSD. You know, the way soldiers are treated is disgusting. I mean, how many homeless veterans do you see around the country? They are used and abused and exploited just like uh, a lot of workers. Um, you know, and of course, it's the generals. Uh, there's really a sort of class system in the military. It's the generals who don't actually fight. They never put on a vest. They never carry a gun. They never go out in the field. Who ordered these soldiers to go die in the field? They ordered them, and then they get all the credit. They get the, you know, the five stars, and they get the, they get the jobs that these weapons industries, after you know, they're done killing people. So it's really the generals who are to blame, and you know, the soldiers you know, are being lied to. Um, so it really is, you know, we keep harping on this issue of war. We harp on this issue of war on the show and, you know, you know, in politics. But it really is important because it is it is one of the core reasons why there's so much poverty and suffering here in the United States. And, you know, one more thing, sorry to be long winded, but, you know, you talk about um, the sort of being on the cusp of something big. I think we are on the cusp of a big shift in consciousness. And the reason it's so important to undermine these propaganda campaigns against China or whoever it might be is because the ruling class in this country always needs to have an enemy. They always need to have an other. They always need to have someone to scapegoat and say, oh, the reason why you're poor, the reason why you're suffering, the reason why you can't pay your rent, it's because China is stealing jobs. It's because China is stealing technology. It's because China, China, China. That The intended purpose of that is to shift blame away from the real culprit of all of the problems in the United States, which is the billionaire class and the corporations and the military industrial complex. That's who we should point the finger at, which is why it's so important to get to make people realize that all these lies and these smear campaigns against China are fake. They're a lie.
Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, you made the point about, you know, homeless veterans and things like that. It's very real. This country claims to love the troops, but doesn't take care of them. It's only interested in them insofar as they can exploit them to further the interest of imperialism. And not only that, but the serious PTSD that, um, uh, 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 you know, soldiers or, 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 uh, people in the military suffer through from having been a part of war. I mean, that takes a real toll on people mentally, even if you come back physically sound, um, the, the toll that it takes on your mind can be pretty serious. I mean, it's no accident that there have been, you know, uh, veterans that um, ended up being, you know, mass shooters and things like this. I mean, this is sort of the real uh, impact and consequences. And there's just no real infrastructure in place to try to transition people back into society with the support that they need after basically taking them and making them killing machines for the U.S. ruling class. And because that 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 and it sounds vulgar to say, but I, I think it's it's true. I think it's accurate to say that folks are, you know, mostly through an economic draft, you know, through a need for a job, through the need for, you know, money and wanting to go to school and things like that. People are put out to basically be bullet sponges for the U.S. ruling class. They go out there, shed their blood, risk their lives. And often die, and if they don't die, often have their um, uh, lives changed irreparably, all for the interest of a wealthy elite who hoard the wealth that all of us work for. And I think another thing that Americans should be aware of are the class dynamics within the military itself. Um, Something as simple as having a four-year degree can make all the difference. And so, you know, the infantrymen are sort of uh, looked down upon where the officers who tend to be, you know, more educated, the one making all the decisions who are literally playing games with uh, uh, people's lives are the ones that are in charge. And this is something that is felt acutely by people because of, of, of the pay, the low pay that they receive and just the treatment that they get. I mean, I've known people who are, who have been, you know, active duty in some uh, arm or wing of the military who then also have to get jobs. You know, I mean, you know, it's like it's presented to them as this is an institution. If you just give us your time, if you give us your life for so many years, we'll take care of you, pay you, send you to school. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, if people want to actually support their families, then they have to look for work elsewhere. And so this is the depth of exploitation that, you know, and really like any corporate entity needs to sort of super exploit the labor while hoarding the profits. But we're going to take another break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Kay Pritzker is here as we continue. And Kay, you've been talking about how the what's the word i want to use 
the fact that the coffers seem to always overflow for war, right? There's always so much money for war. When it comes to social programs and the things that actually sustain and develop humanity, it's always, oh, we don't have the money. Oh, it would be nice. But, you know, how are we going to pay for it when literally trillions of dollars go into uh, uh, wars like we're seeing in Afghanistan? And a part of the crises, of course, facing poor working people in this country and, of course, in the world is the uh, coronavirus pandemic. I mean, reportedly, the state of Alabama is out of ICU beds. There are no intensive care unit beds due to the recent surge, the Delta variant of COVID-19. And, um, you know, uh, people in Alabama hospitals who need um, intensive care, I mean, they're being put in emergency rooms. They're being put on gurneys and hallways. I mean, it, it just is criminal, frankly, what people are uh, uh, being forced to uh, uh, go through. And I mean, Alabama is just one example. I mean, in Florida, over 10,000 students in one school district had to enter isolation or quarantine after just one week of the schools being open. And, you know, I think there's a number of things that go into it. I mean, if we watch la- the liberal media, they'll have us to believe that it's just a bunch of dumb hicks down south um, who aren't getting vaccinated because they don't know any better. But but I think there are really uh, several reasons. I mean, there's a kind of distrust of both the healthcare industry, big pharma and the government when it comes to these sorts of things that um, that I think are understandable. I mean, I mean, if you look at black people, for instance, there is a centuries long history of uh, medical abuse and torture, right? And so the fact that there wasn't even like a basic education program, and, and, and yeah, if you listen to Binomies Necessary, you know I raise this all the time with the pandemic, there was not even a basic education program to inform the population about everything we needed to know about the coronavirus and how we should react to it. And that just creates, I think, a breeding ground for misinformation and conspiratorial thinking. I mean, there are also serious discrepancies in people's access to vaccines. I mean, the South, you know, I mean, that's some of the highest poverty in the country. And even if the vaccines may be available, I mean, if people aren't able to take off work to go get it, then it isn't uh, worth much. And then, of course, you know, and, and, and I do want to, you know, acknowledge, of course, that there are people who are sort of actively anti-vaccine, pushing conspiracies and things like that. But there's another aspect of it, and that's the hyper-individualistic culture that is bred in us through capitalism. It's capitalist culture. I mean, when you look at countries like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, countries that have far less resources than the United States and who are all under attack by the United States in the form of sanctions and um, other things, um, you know, their approach to the um, pandemic was quite different because there's a more kind of collective uh, sensibility amongst the people. I think it's a similar thing in China. So when you have a competent uh, government, and I don't even know if, if competence is so much the issue as much as a willingness to actually do what is necessary to protect people. I think it's more of an issue of that, right? And ultimately, Kay, this uh, 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 the capitalist system has been what is continuing to make the coronavirus such a deep and abiding issue, 
not only in the United States, but all over the world, because it's not something that is contained just in the United States. Right. And, you know, we're seeing these issues like if you look at um, the continent of Africa, less than two percent of people on the entire African continent are fully vaccinated. Meanwhile, the United States is calling for a third dose. You know what I mean? And so, you know, the, the, the role of imperialism in this whole question, I don't think can be ruled out as well. But as ever, we can't escape these broader problems of class exploitation, of imperialist plunder, and the fact that, uh, 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 you know, countries like the U.S., these major governments, these imperialist powers are hoarding vaccines just like they hoard um, the wealth of the world, you know, I think is a big part of why the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is still raging as strongly uh, as it is at this moment. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, it's really, you know, here in New York, uh, they're saying we're kind of in the same exact place we were going into last winter um, when there was some massive spike in cases. And it's just like, okay, this is, you know, we've been in this pandemic for over a year now. Uh, you know, the United States had the worst response in the world. And, you know, hospitals were getting overrun with patients. Uh, there wasn't enough sort of education about not just the virus and the vaccines, but also, you know, people were undisciplined. They were going outside. Um, all these things, you know, you'd think, okay, well, even if we screwed it up the first time, like, let's learn our lesson and do it right the next time. Instead, you know, we're sending billions of dollars to Israel to kill Palestinians. Um, you know, we're sending warships through the Taiwan Strait. We're doing everything but solving the actual problems of the country. And, you know, you think about, for example, um, you know, another big thing right now is this debate over infrastructure spending in the United States. Um, you know, I've, I've been reading about it. And it's just like, we're about to spend, there's a debate about whether or not we should spend a trillion dollars on the infrastructure. And like you were saying, Sean, like there's never a question about whether or not we should spend a trillion dollars in the military, because we do that every single year. We spend a trillion dollars on the U S military every single year, but there's all hell breaks loose in Congress. And there's so-called, you know, gridlock in Congress when it comes to spending a trillion dollars on infrastructure or on, you know, COVID-19 relief or what have you. Why is it such a problem to spend money on social programs or things that would help people? Because often, you know, a lot of things that help people, you can't really profit off of. You can't really profit off of, uh, you know, I don't know, COVID-19 education. You can't really profit off of, uh, you know, building more hospital beds. You can't, I mean, you could try maybe, uh, I don't know. I need to look into it, but you know, you, most, you can't really profit off of public works either. Like, uh, you know, highways and bridges and roads, which are at risk of collapsing right now all across the country. You can profit immensely though, off of things that are sold things, you know, goods, commodities that are sold for a profit. Um, unlike public goods, unlike, uh, public infrastructure. So, you know, that it makes sense that in a system where, profit comes before people, a system that doesn't prioritize human needs, it prioritizes making people rich, making rich people richer. Uh, it, it's not surprising that we spend a trillion dollars on war, but it's you know somehow controversial to spend that much on infrastructure or on COVID-19 response. So, you know, I really think um, 
Yeah, I don't know. In New York City, there's all, like, everyone is, you know, they're, they're implementing every single thing that um, they can that doesn't actually interfere with commerce. It's interesting. They're talking about mandating vaccines in schools. Uh, they're talking about maybe bringing back a ma- mask mandate, but it's like there's no chance that they're going to shut down bars. There's no chance that they're going to do what they actually have to do to prevent people from spreading the virus because that would interfere with the profits of the city's small businesses. And obviously the mayor, you know, who gets paid by the small business association doesn't want to interfere with the gravy train. So, you know, it all has to do with profit. It all has to do with profit. That's why it's called capitalism. That's a fact. And, you know, I want to remind people, because we've been talking about China and the new Cold War against China directed by Washington. And if people remember the beginning of the pandemic, when the uh, when the pandemic was first reported as emerging from Wuhan, I think we're still not necessarily 100 percent clear on where it actually originated. And let's just say it was definitively proven to have originated in China. That actually doesn't mean anything. Pandemics happen every so often. And the fact that it originates in one country or another isn't an indictment on that country. Or, I mean, it shouldn't be. But, I mean, obviously, from the standpoint of imperialism, you have to politicize this sort of thing. But what I wanted to raise is that the United States government accused the Chinese government of not taking the the, the pandemic seriously. And then when China acted swiftly to, you know, go into lockdown and not only that, but to um, support, excuse me, it's people financially knowing about the economic hit they would take and they were able to get a much better handle on things as a result. And then the U.S. turned around and said that, well, they were being authoritarian um, for doing that, for like doing what is necessary to actually contain something like a pandemic. And then when China sent its doctors to different parts of the world, to countries like Italy that couldn't even get assistance from the European Union, they claimed them as, you know, just trying to score political points, that this was some cynical maneuver to try to, um, you know, shine up the reputation of the supposedly repressive Chinese communist government. And so, you know, the, the, the goalpost shifting and all these sorts of things have been uh, pretty ridiculous. And I think it's noteworthy because you talked about, Kay, the uh, uh, sort of the response from socialist countries and how different a pandemic response looks when you're living under a system that does put people over profits in a real way and not just, you know, a sloganeering sort of way. I mean, the U.S., we can, we can say that, but there are people who really live under those systems and it's no accident that the countries that have those systems are constantly under attack by the United States. You know what I mean? And so this is, I think, another reason why countries like China, like Cuba, like Venezuela, like Nicaragua, like the DPRK have to constantly be demonized because from a political aspect, you can't let the reality of what socialism is be known to the masses of American people, because the people in this country might look at that and say, well, you know, I think I'd like some of that here, too. I'd like, you know, open access to health care, housing, all these uh, sorts of things, the bare necessities taken care of that we don't have here 
in the richest nation in the history of nations. So this is a part of the psychological aspect of it. So not only is it necessary then to attack socialist countries, but it's also necessary to attack socialism itself as it gains popularity here in the United States. This is why uh, anti-socialist and anti-communist sentiments are almost like an unofficial religion in the United States because the popularity of those politics are a real threat to the ruling class, both Democrat and Republican, which is why I think we see such attacks on socialism in different ways here in the U.S. as well, Kay. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, how would people in the United States feel if they knew the truth about these countries? If they knew that in a lot of these countries, people don't get charged for riding the ambulance. Like, it's, it's just, it would be, it's, it's uncomprehendable almost. You know, in some of these countries, people aren't, they don't pay more than 10% of their monthly income to rent. Um, it, it's just such a foreign concept to those who have been raised in this capitalist society where every single thing, every single, you know, life, sort of altering thing is a mechanism or is a means of making profit. Even something that should be as sacred as like healthcare and like your literal survival is up for, you know, debate. It's up for profit. If it's not profitable to save your life, then they won't do it. If, if it's not profitable for the insurance com- company to cover your surgery, they're not going to do it. You know, if it's not profitable to give someone a life-saving drug for less than, you know, $10,000, they're not going to do it. So it's, yeah, they have to lie about these countries. They have to lie about China's response. And I think, you know, the U.S. media's sort of reaction to China's COVID response shows exactly that it's proof that the U.S. lies. No matter what a country does, whether they're doing something right or whether they're doing something wrong, they will always lie about that country. Because when China was not yet sort of trying to make a drastic move um, because they were trying to gauge what the sort of virus was. The U.S. was saying, oh, well, you need to get a handle on this virus. It's out of control. Then they actually do what countries needed to do to stop this virus, which is shut down the country and shut down Wuhan specifically. And then the U.S. says you're authoritarian. So you're bad if you don't do anything about the virus and you're bad if you do something about the virus. What does that tell me? It tells me that the United States wants to paint China as the bad guy no matter what. It tells me that the United States doesn't want to see China or any other country for that matter objectively, but it just wants to portray it in whatever way will be convenient for, you know, its own sort of uh, agenda. So, you know, uh, you, you really can't trust what the United States has to say about these countries. Study these countries for yourself. Study their history for yourself. And I think you'll you'll quickly realize that the United States is actually the one behind a lot of the problems in many of these countries. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, this is an aside because you mentioned um, the U.S. being behind the suffering in so many of these countries. I mean, you know, I've been reading uh, this book by Jose Marti when he was, uh, you know, in exile in the United States. It's called Inside the monster. And I mean, what it makes clear is that, you know, the United States interference or really attack on Cuban sovereignty goes 
far, it goes far before the 1959 revolution. We're talking about a couple of centuries where the United States has wanted to control Cuba and actively fought and actively intervened against Cuba's independent struggle from Spain because what the U.S. wanted was for Spain to sell Cuba to the United States. I believe it was John Quincy Adams who said, you know, he wanted Cuba to fall like a ripe pear or a ripe apple into the lap of North America. And so, you know, this is not a history of any country, Cuba, China, what have you. This is not something that we're made aware of in the United States. We're just taught to believe that whatever the United States does is good, even when it's bad, right? Because even if it's bad, they did it for a good reason. The genocide against indigenous people is justified. The enslavement of African people is justified. It's got to be shook up. The suppression of the women's vote, black folks vote, all these sorts of things, anti-immigrant sentiments. All of that is somehow justified because it helped build up the so-called greatest country on earth. And so I think a big part of our movement building effort, you know, has to be sort of you know raising the consciousness and really, you know, uh, shifting the mind, changing the mental terrain, if you will, that has been under attack by the U.S. ruling class for so long in this country. And it may not be easy, but it certainly is necessary. Well, we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, K. Pritzker, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.